By the mid-19th century, the bourgeoisie began to flourish and grow. The Industrial Revolution produced talented and ambitious bankers, merchants, manufacturers, and professionals. Aware of their importance and wealth, these new rich wanted to break the stranglehold that the landed nobility had on political power and social prestige. They also wanted to ensure that the government continued to turn a blind eye on the free pursuit of profits. They refused to believe in conservatism's emphasis on a natural elite. Many of these men had literally pulled themselves out of the bottom of society. Instead, they wanted to see the ideals promised by the Enlightenment and the French Revolution fulfilled. Liberals wanted to alter the status quo. They insisted that a person's value should not be measured by their birth, but by their achievements. Successful in life, they had confidence in the goodness of human nature and the capacity of individuals to control their own lives. <coughs> Ancient classical Greece had introduced the concept of the citizen who had a voice in the decisions of their city-state. Judeo-Christian traditions respected the individual. All of these societies had demanded equality among people. Furthermore, in England, the glorious revolution of 1688 established Parliament's control over the monarchy. The English Bill of Rights of that year had permitted religious tolerance, and it seemed justified that people should have their right to their opinions on all matters. The philosophes of the Enlightenment also cherished religious tolerance and freedom. They were confident that humans were inherently good <clears throat> and that the human mind could solve any problem it was given. Humanity had no way but to progress. The American and French revolutions gave further support to the 18th century liberals. The American Constitution incorporated checks and balances to ensure an effective and just government. And by the mid-19th century, Europeans were well aware that the Americans had an effective government. On the night of August 4, 1789, the French National Assembly destroyed the special privileges French aristocrats possessed since the Middle Ages. The Declaration of the Rights of Man proclaimed equality under the law. Both revolutions insisted on property rights. 19th century liberals believed that people could think of a solution to any problem and become responsible citizens. However, to accomplish this, people needed to be educated. As we saw when we spoke of Cristina de Belligiosa, an educated people could apply reason in both their political and social life and would be able to act in ways beneficial not only to themselves, but to society in general. Educated people would also resist tyrants. Like the Romantics, liberals did not want the government or anyone preventing individuals from exercising their free choice or opinion. This would handicap them from self-determination and self-development. Liberals wanted written constitutions which promised freedom of speech, press, and religion. They wanted protection for their property as well as from arbitrary arrest. Liberals wanted freely elected parliaments and distribution of power among the government's various branches. However, they overwhelmingly believed that a government that governs the least and interferes as little as possible with the economic, religious, and private lives of their subjects was the best government. 
Liberals adopted Adam Smith's theory of laissez-faire, or as I like to call it, according to the Beatles, let it be, and demanded that government not block free competition nor deprive individuals of their property. Property was an individual's incentive to work hard and efficiently. Liberals believed that when people acted in their own self-interest, they worked harder and achieved more. Competition was good. It meant more and better goods at the lowest possible price. A free economy was essential to a community and an individual's well-being. Unfortunately, their interest in the community and the individual went just so far. If people were capable of organizing their own lives and bettering themselves, then they were also responsible for their own misfortunes. Laissez-faire should keep the government out of individuals' lives, which also meant there was no need for legislation to alleviate human misery. Government interference discouraged the poor from finding work and promoted idleness. Benjamin Disraeli, the future Prime Minister of England, wrote, Two nations, between whom there is no intercourse and no sympathy, who are ignorant of each other's habits, thoughts, and feelings, as if they were dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets, who are formed by different breeding, fed by different food, ordered by different manners, and not governed by the same laws, the rich and the poor. Having pulled themselves out of their own humble beginnings, liberals regarded social reforms as unwarranted and dangerous. 19th century liberals saw poverty as an iron law of nature. They supported this opinion with scientific arguments. Thomas Malthus, an English cleric and influential economist, argued that agricultural production never produced as much as the amount of people needing food. Population grew too fast and only natural disasters or individuals practicing careful self-control could check these numbers. The poor's distress was not due to faulty political or social institutions, but to the number of children they had. Unfortunately, Malthus argued that the poor lacked the self-control needed to refrain from sex. David Ricardo, another English economist, proposed the iron law of wages. Higher wages also provided no relief. They only undermined profits, which forced employers to reduce wages. Higher wages also allowed workers to have more children, causing an increase in the labor supply. Competition for jobs among too many workers brought wages down and resulted in greater poverty. Jeremy Bentham argued that people chose pleasant options and avoided anything unpleasant. Therefore, he believed charity needed to be so unpleasant it became an object of horror, ensuring that people would do almost anything to avoid it. Compassion for the poor was a misplaced emotion. 19th century liberalism's coldness and harshness showed itself clearly in two approaches to the poverty that reflected the thinking of these theories. In 1834, Parliament passed the New Poor Law, as a means of standardizing treatment of, while protecting, the deserving poor. Acting on Malthus's idea of population, the government decided to give charity only in workhouses, and agreeing with Bentham's arguments, workhouse conditions should deter any but the truly destitute from applying for relief. 
Each workhouse usually had 150 inmates. As well as segregating the sexes, they also segregated them into two further categories, the deserving and the undeserving poor. The undeserving were people who workhouse authorities felt were able but unwilling to support themselves. Upon arrival, new inmates were placed in receiving wards where they remained until the next weekly meeting of the Board of Guardians. Men, women, and children were separated on arrival. This was done to maintain order, but also to prevent, quote, pauper breeding, having people become pregnant. At the meeting, inmates were summoned into the boardroom and assessed. The guardians gave some a small sum of money so they could live until they found work. Vagrants were allowed to stay as long as they performed work and returned for bed and board. Others, deemed unemployable, were formally admitted into the workhouse. Once admitted, families were only permitted to see each other a few hours a week. Husbands and wives ate, slept, worked, and exercised independently of each other in separate parts of the building. Clothing and possessions were removed, washed, and placed in storage. The new inmates then got a brief health check by a medical officer, were issued a workhouse uniform, and made to take a bath. For many, bathing was a terrifying prospect. Most had not washed their bodies for years and years. Children received three school hours every day. Sitting on benches, they faced a large blackboard. In addition to reading and writing, they learned the principles of Christianity. They also learned work-related skills, such as cooking and sewing for girls, which might result in a job as a domestic. Pauper children, however, were forcibly apprenticed often without the permission or knowledge of their parents. Adults worked to earn their keep. Women did oakum picking, which meant hours picking apart bits of rope into fibers that were then used to fill boat seams to make them waterproof. Men broke stones or ground animal bones to make fertilizer. Both jobs were incredibly demanding work, which made little money for the workhouse. The jobs were just a way of deterring people from entering workhouses. Inmates got between 137 and 182 ounces of soup and gruel per week. Please, sir, more, sir. Amounts varied according to gender. Meals were also segregated and usually eaten in silence. An inmate sat facing forward in long rows so they couldn't talk freely with each other. In one workhouse, inmates were so hungry that they gnawed the old moldy animal bones they were meant to crush for fertilizer. The workhouse system was often corrupt and there were many instances of family breakdown, poverty, greed, violence, and neglect of the poor. The 1834 welfare reform had no impact on rural wages, labor mobility, or the poor's fertility rates. It had no effects on even economic growth and performance of England's Industrial Revolution. <coughs> Workhouses reflected the popular belief in social Darwinism. This theory took Darwin's laws of natural selection and applied it to people, individual groups, and countries. Social Darwinists believed that the strong should see their wealth and power increase, while the weak lost everything. Malthus's theory meant that the weakest would ultimately starve. Herbert Spencer, 
supported laissez-faire capitalism. He coined the phrase, survival of the fittest, not Darwin. Spencer argued that self-improvement was inherited through the daily struggle for survival. Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin, was the first to apply statistical methods to study human differences and wondered whether intelligence was inherited. He coined the term nature versus nurture. Galton believed welfare and insane asylums allowed inferior people to survive and re reproduce at levels faster than the more superior humans. He warned that if this continued, society would be awash with inferiors. See the movie Idiocracy, it's hilarious. All of these theories supported capitalism, laissez-faire, and conservatism. Wealth was a sign of success and superiority. The poor were unfit and did not deserve help. Social Darwin's influence greatly contributed to the misery of the Irish potato famine. The Great Famine was a period of mass starvation and disease in Ireland from 1845 to 1849. From 1800 to 1820, the potato became the, potato, the poor's main food, especially in winter. The potato blight destroyed the potato crops in the eastern United States during 1843 and 1844. In 1844, clipper ships sailing from America brought it to Ireland. Once it reached Ireland, the blight spread rapidly. By 1845, more than half of Ireland's crop had been lost. By 1846, three quarters. Since over three million Irish were totally dependent on potatoes, hunger and famine were inevitable. During the famine, about one million people died and a million more emigrated. The Irish population expanded rapidly in the 18th century. Catholics made up 80% of the population and the bulk lived in poverty and insecurity. The Irish poor tended to marry earlier and the Catholics grew at a much faster rate than the Protestant community. By 1800s, the population of Ireland was 6 million. By 1840, it was well over 8 million and Ireland was one of the most densely populated countries in Europe. The potato was cheap and nutritious. Poor people survived longer and were surprisingly healthy. At the top of Ireland's social pyramid were the English and Anglo-Irish families who owned most of the land and held unchecked power over their tenants. The Earl of Lucan owned more than 60,000 acres. These landlords viewed Ireland as a hostile place in which to live, and most visited their property only once or twice in their lifetime, if ever. Many of the Anglo-Irish elite believed the crises was a result of the Irish Catholics' good-for-nothing lifestyle and their inherent laziness. They pointed out that the Irish had too many children. Lord Trevelyan, a member of the Irish administration, publicly stated that God was punishing the Irish, an Anglican God at that. The rents received from Ireland, six million pounds in 1842, were spent outside of Ireland. In 1845, most tenants had holdings that were so small that no crop other than potatoes could feed a family. After rent was paid, these families survived only by working as seasonal migrant labor in England and Scotland. In Ireland, they worked for their landlords in return for their patch of land. Unable to pay the rents due to the blight, thousands of people, 
1849, 90,000, and in 1850, 104,000 were driven from the land. Wealthy British speculators took advantage, purchasing land, raising rents, and evicting tenants to create large cattle grazing pastures. To be evicted during the famine meant a death sentence. The evictions did not include the numbers pressured into voluntary surrenders during the whole period. That figure would almost certainly exceed half a million people. In April 1848, it was estimated that a thousand houses with an average of six people each had been leveled since November. The Mahone family of Stokestown evicted 3,000 people in 1847 and were still able to dine on lobster soup. The greatest killer was not starvation, but disease. Only a small percentage of those who died did so because of a lack of nutrition or starvation. Instead, they died of illness and disease because hunger weakened their immune systems and created environments where communicable diseases were easily spread. Local water supplies became polluted. Dysentery caused by drinking infected water and typhus were the greatest killers. Dysentery killed some 222,000 and fevers killed 93,000. The real numbers of deaths was probably higher. Victims of famine almost never recovered because it was impossible to, res to resurrect the body's energies. The death rate spiked in the winter because they didn't have the strength or resources to provide themselves with proper clothing. Many died of pneumonia. Another great killer was food poisoning. The starving ate anything, including tainted or inedible food, such as grass and nettles. Ironically, although the potato crop failed, Ireland was still producing and exporting more than enough grain crops to feed the population. Charities donated money. Calcutta, India, made the first donation of 14,000 pounds by Irish soldiers serving there and Irish people employed by the East India Company. The Pope and Queen Victoria each donated 2,000 pounds. And according to legend, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire originally offered to send 10,000 pounds, but was asked by British diplomats to reduce his charity to 1,000 pounds to avoid donating more than the Queen. President Polk donated $50, and in 1847, Congressman Abraham Lincoln donated $10. The strained relationship between many Irish and their government soured further, heightening ethnic and sectarian tensions and boosting Irish nationalism and republicanism. In the end, social Darwinism influenced capitalism, imperialism, fascism, Nazism, and the struggle between national or racial groups. Proponents of social Darwinism stressed that competition between individuals was, nat was natural, while encouraging authoritarianism, eugenics, and racism. Socialism demanded the creation of a new society. Socialists went further than either the liberals or the romantics. Liberals might be concerned about individual freedom, and romantics might demand voting rights for more people, but my, neither of these had little impact on the poverty, oppression, and gross inequality of wealth 
that plagued modern society. Socialists, reflecting the Enlightenment's and French Revolution spirit, denounced the status quo for perpetuating injustice. They believed people could create a better world. Socialists dreamed of a new social order, a future utopia where each person found happiness and self-fulfillment. The most important early socialist thinkers, Saint-Simon, Fourier, Owens, proposed new social and economic systems in which production and distribution of goods resulted in the general benefit of society. They believed current society to be unjust. It kept great masses of people in poverty, oppression, and despair. Society was mismanaged. People were prevented from working for the common good. Socialists argued that people achieved more happiness for themselves and others by living, working, and planning together in a cooperative community. Some wanted a voluntary divorce from the larger society, proposing communes or model factory towns. All of the socialists believed that workers needed to control the means of making, moving, and trading wealth. For them, there were two main ways to own the means of wealth, by the state on behalf of the workers or by worker-owned cooperatives. Saint-Simon was a French aristocrat who became a political and economic theorist and businessman. He claimed that in order to have an effective society and an efficient economy, the needs of an industrial class, which he called the working class, needed to be recognized and fulfilled. Saint-Simon defined the working class as all people engaged in productive work who contributed to society. This included business people, managers, scientists, bankers, and manual laborers. Saint-Simon saw the primary threat to the working class coming from those he called the idling class, able-bodied people who preferred to be parasitic, benefiting from the work of others while seeking to avoid uh, doing work. He believed in the merit of the individual and the need for a societal and economic hierarchy of merit. Managers and scientists should now be the government's decision makers. Saint-Simon believed science and technology would solve most of humanity's problems. He argued that all of Europe had been in a trans transitional crisis since the 15th century. In the 15th century, the established medieval order based on feudalism and Catholicism began to yield to a new system based on industry and science. Saint-Simon endorsed the French Revolution's ideas of liberty, equality, and fraternity. Saint-Simon reduced Christianity to its simplest and essential elements. He believed the essence of Christianity was the golden rule. Therefore, society needed to improve the moral and physical existence of the poorest class. His new Christianity would be the antidote to selfish interest and would conquer the nationalism that divided Europeans. He also wanted to see one world linked by canals. He was an early proponent of the Suez Canal. On March 9, 1823, disappointed by his lack of results in guiding society towards improvement, he attempted suicide. He shot himself in the head six times without succeeding, losing only the sight in one eye. Fourier declared that concern and cooperation were the secrets of social success. 
and immense improvement in productivity levels would be the result of societal cooperation. Workers would be recompensed for their labors according to their contribution. Cooperation would occur in communities he called phalanxes, with structures called grand hotels. These buildings were four-level apartment complexes where the richest had the uppermost apartments and the poorest the ground floor residents. Wealth should be determined by one's jobs. Jobs were assigned based on the interests and desires of the individuals. There were higher pay incentives for jobs people might not enjoy doing. Fourier considered trade the source of all evil. He saw poverty as the principal cause of societal disorder and proposed to eradicate it by paying sufficiently higher wages and a decent minimum wage for those not able to work. Could anyone say Bernie Sanders? Fourier also supported women's rights. He believed that all important jobs should be open to women on the basis of skill and aptitude rather than closed on account of gender. He spoke of women as individuals, not as half of the human couple, and felt that traditional marriage potentially hurt women as human beings. He himself never married. Fourier believed that men and women have a wide range of sexual needs and preferences, which changes throughout their lives, and argued that all sexual expression should be enjoyed as long as people are not abused. He believed every woman should have four lovers or husbands simultaneously. Fourier dedicated himself with liberating every man, woman, and child through education, as well as giving free reign to human passion. His ideas found some acceptance in the United States, where in the 1840s at least 29 communities sprang up, but none lasted more than five or six years. Louisa May Alcott's family, Little Women, lived in one of his communities. Fourier also believed the North Pole to be milder than the Mediterranean and that the oceans would lose their salt and become lemonade seas. Robert Owens believed workers should own the companies they worked for. They could then share the profits among themselves. Owens first tested his social and economic ideas at his mill in England. In 1810, Owens pioneered the eight-hour day, eight hours labor, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest. He won his workers' confidence and achieved improved efficiency at the mill. The community also earned an international reputation. Owens felt human character resulted from conditions over which individuals had no control, so they could not be praised or blamed for their behavior or situation in life. Instead, he believed that placing children in the proper physical, moral, and social environment would result in the correct formation of people's characters. Owens' biggest success was in support of youth education and early child care. He provided free education from infancy to adulthood. Owens' workers' store offered goods at prices only slightly above their wholesale cost, passing on the savings from bulk purchases to his customers and placing alcohol sales under strict supervision. Health, plenty, and contentment prevailed. Drunkenness was virtually unknown and illegitimacy extremely rare. Owens traveled to America and invested most of his fortune in an experimental socialist community in New Harmony, Indiana. It lasted two years. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels labeled the early socialists utopian socialists because they believed that their ideal societies 
could be established in the immediate future. Saint-Simon, Fourier, and Owens were the inspirations for Marx and Engels' ideas. Romanticism also awakened nationalist feelings. By examining the language, literature, and folk culture, romantics instilled a sense of national pride. During the French Revolution, the revolutionaries believed that sovereignty derived from the nation, the people as a whole. This nation's state was above king, church, estate, guild, or province. The French were now citizens of a united fatherland, la patrie. The Jacobins created a national army and called for allegiance and sacrifice and the expansion of France's borders and revolutionary ideals. The Jacobins used the press and schoolrooms to foster a love of country. In England, the Industrial Revolution caused people to identify with the country at large rather than the smaller units of their province, town, or family. A popular patriotic nationalism took place in the mid-18th century, actively promoted by the British government and by romantic writers and intellectuals of the time. These nationalists constructed national symbols such as the Union Jack, and the patriotic song, Rule Britannia. The character of John Bull becomes the personification of the English national spirit. The nation is also the only rightful source of political power. It builds and maintains a single national identity based on shared social characteristics, such as culture, ethnicity, geographic location, language, politics, or the government, religion, traditions, and belief in a shared history. The nation promoted national unity or solidarity. Nationalism preserved and fostered a nation's traditional culture. It also encouraged pride in national achievements. The government also controlled aspects of the, of the economy to promote the nation's self-interest. It supported the people who owned the means of production. Although nationalists don't care whether the government or private business owns the means of production, as long as it makes the nation stronger. Nationalists exhibited great pride in their history and tradition and often feel that their nation has been specifically chosen by God. It provides an individual with a sense of community and with a cause worthy of self-sacrifice. The Romantics also awakened nationalist feelings by examining language, literature, and folk culture. They instilled a sense of national pride. Romantics were the earliest proponent of German nationalism, the Volkgeist, soul of the people. They reminded people with memories of the German past and emphasized the unique qualities of the German folk and the special destiny of this German nation. Nationalism believed that each nation should govern itself without outside interference. Nationalists demanded to be independent of other countries because they believed in the superiority of their shared attributes. Nationalists often stereotyped different ethnic, religious, or cultural groups, and the result of this prejudice kept their nation unified. In the early 19th century, liberals were the principal leaders and supporters of nationalist movements. They viewed the struggle for national rights, freedom of a people from foreign rule, as an extension of the rights of the individual. Liberals called for the unification of Germany, Italy, and the liberation of Greece from Turkish rule. The danger of nationalism is in its arrogance and potential military aggression towards other countries and people. 
nationalism and social Darwinism set the stage for World War I and World War II. Ooh, I can hardly wait.